Welcome to Peacemaking in Paris, presented by Professor Sir Hugh Strawn for UCL Institute of Education. This series marks the centenary of the Peace Conference in 1919, when the United States and Allied powers met in Paris to decide the terms of the peace settlements with the defeated Central Powers. I'm Simon Bendry, Director of UCL Institute of Education's First World War Centenary Battlefield Tours programme. In an earlier podcast series, From Amiens to Armistice, Sir Hugh looked at the sequence of Allied victories from the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August 1918 to the armistice negotiated by Germany on the 11th of November 1918. In Peacemaking in Paris, he reflects on the peace conference and its legacy. In this podcast, he explores the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at the end of the First World War and its implications for Turkey and the Middle East. By the beginning of 1914, the Ottoman Empire seemed to be in terminal decline. It had just been defeated in the First Balkan War and as a result had lost a great deal of its remaining territory within Europe to Serbia, Bulgaria and Greece. Its taxation revenues were mortgaged to the great powers of Europe in a system known as capitulations. In other words, the Turkish people were effectively paying off their debts to other countries rather than supporting their own country. To add to this sense of humiliation was the dependence of many of the core services within the Ottoman Empire, the army, the navy and the police, on foreign powers. The army was trained by the Germans, the navy was trained by the British and the police were trained by the French. One solution to this set of problems was the possibility of getting a strong ally who would side with them and support them as they tried to rebuild their empire. In the run-up to the First World War, they approached both Britain and France, and both said no. They even approached Russia, their most persistent and long-standing enemy, with whom they had fought three wars in the 19th century, and the Russians said no. In Germany, the view was, as von Moltke, the younger chief of the general staff, put it in March 1914, Turkey may have been a sick man hitherto, but now it is a dying man. The situation changed fundamentally with the July crisis of 1914. Now Germany saw the Ottoman Empire less as the sick man of Europe and more as a potential ally which could give Germany access through Ottoman territory to the wider world. And through that access could allow Germany to attack indirectly the empires of Britain, France and Russia. All those empires ruled significant numbers of Muslim peoples who might respond to an Ottoman call to jihad, to holy war. So on the 2nd of August 1914, Germany and the Ottoman Empire brokered a secret alliance. Initially, the Ottoman Empire did not enter the First World War. It mobilised its army, but it took the decision to hold back from active hostilities until late October 1914, when it engineered an attack on Russian ports in the Black Sea, and so by the beginning of November 1914, found itself at war. The response from the three Entente powers, Britain, France and Russia, was to move to a position where they were now ready to consider the partition of the Ottoman Empire into their respective spheres of interest. This was a remarkable turnaround, particularly for Britain and France. For most of the 19th century, Britain and France had been concerned about Russian expansion through the Black Sea, through the Straits of the Dardanelles, into the Eastern Mediterranean, and into the Balkans. In 1853-54, 
Britain and France had allied with the Ottomans in order to prevent Russian expansionism in the Eastern Mediterranean. And for much of the 19th century for Britain, because Russia was seen as the big threat to India, the Ottoman Empire was seen as the potential bulwark against Russian expansion southwards. By 1914, that commitment has clearly evaporated. On the 2nd of November 1914, Britain was ready to agree a deal with Russia, which would give Russia access to the Dardanelles and hence into the Eastern Mediterranean and control of the Ottoman capital, Istanbul, then called Constantinople. So, if the British, French and Russians win this war, the Ottomans are facing the potential partition of their empire. The Ottoman Empire, like many other empires of the day, was a multinational empire that in an era of nationalisms was prone to fragmentation. It was made up not just of Turks, the ruling ethnic group, but also of Arabs, Armenians, Kurds, Georgians, Greeks, of Christians as well as Muslims. Much of the empire had in the past depended on a mood of toleration and inclusivity, despite the dominance of Islam, to hold it together. The Entente's plans for the division of the Ottoman Empire in the event of an Allied victory were complicated by the intrusion of two more countries into their calculations. The first was Italy. Italy had formerly been allied to Germany and Austria-Hungary before the outbreak of the First World War, but in May 1915 committed itself to the Entente side. It had harboured ambitions in relation to the acquisition of Ottoman territory. In 1911, it had gone to war in order to conquer Libya, still formerly part of the Ottoman Empire. In 1915, although the Ottomans have lost Libya, Ottoman secret intelligence services are operating in Libya against the Italians. The Italians themselves are claiming territory in Anatolia to go alongside the territory they expect to acquire from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The second entrant is Greece. Greece does not enter the First World War until 1917, but it does so in part in pursuit of the idea of a greater Greece, a new Greek empire which would extend across the eastern Mediterranean to lands which had been colonised by Greeks before the birth of Christ and where there were still Greek peoples living. During 1915 and 1916, the Ottomans conduct a very successful defence of their core Turkish territories from Gallipoli to Mesopotamia, what is today Iraq with victories over predominantly British forces at Gallipoli and exclusively British and Indian forces at Kutalamara. But by 1917, the southern front of the Ottoman Empire is collapsing. Both Baghdad in Iraq and Jerusalem in Palestine, as it was then, fall to Allied forces by the end of the year. And the Ottomans increasingly regard the loyalty and support of the Arabs within their empire as conditional. With the crumbling of the southern front of the Ottoman Empire, the Allies have the opportunity to consolidate their aspirations with regard to its territorial partition. The trouble is that they effectively enter into three separate commitments, each of which conflicts with the other. The first of those commitments was that between Britain and France settled in 1916 
by Sir Mark Sykes and François-Georges Picot. That essentially divvied up the lands of the Ottoman Empire in the south between the two countries. France was to get Syria and Palestine and today's Lebanon, and Britain was to get the lands to the east, today's Iraq, particularly because by then Britain wanted control of the oil, which had become increasingly important as a resource for them as the war developed. By 1915, oil-fired battleships are entering service in the British fleet, and the recognition is that if Britain is going to continue to be a major sea power, it will also have to, in some form, be able to control the supply of oil. So Iraq provides that opportunity. However, somewhat earlier, Britain had entered into conversations with Hussein, a Hashemite ruler from Hejaz, from Palestine, who aspired to the creation of an Arab nation, which in its most extreme form ran from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea and to the Persian Gulf. Hussein's aspirations are kept alive because Britain in the early stages of the First World War is losing out to the Ottomans and needs the Arabs as allies. Hussein is a particularly powerful figure too because he is the emir of Mecca. In other words, he controls the spiritual home of Islam. He consolidates in his own person the idea that the Ottoman Empire can claim the caliphate to be both the political fount of Muslim faith in this world and its spiritual and religious authority in the world hereafter. There is another attraction in Arab nationalism for the British. It's a way of their exercising indirect control over the region. They won't be seen as directly imperialist, but if they sponsor the formation of an independent Arab state and therefore act as the defenders of Arab nationalism, then they will be able to exercise indirect authority over the region. Much of the support for an independent Arab state comes from an organization set up in Cairo, the Arab Bureau. This is the office in which T. Lawrence operates, in which Gertrude Bell operates, and both of these become key exponents of the idea of Arab nationalism. Both of them, too, become charismatic figures. Lawrence with Hussein and Hussein's son Faisal in the Arab Revolt, and Gertrude Bell in Iraq. So here we have a British current supporting French rule and a British current supporting an Arab nation. Then in November 1917, Britain entered into a third contradictory agreement issued by Arthur Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary, in a document now known as the Balfour Declaration, an agreement to provide a homeland for the Jews. Most Jews had assimilated in the countries in which they had settled. They had been expelled from Palestine over two millennia before, and they would be found across Western Russia, in Eastern Europe, through Britain, and in the United States. Few of them had any desire to return to what was seen as a deprived part of the world, alien from the cultures to which they had become accustomed. Those who were most deprived and most persecuted were the Jews of Russia, but their aspiration was not to go south, it was to go further west and ultimately to end up in America. So Zionism, the notion that the Jews should have their own homeland within Palestine, was a minority interest. 
It required the work of a man called Theodor Herzl, a German speaker from Austria-Hungary, whose family originally came from Russia. It required his work in a book published in 1896 to popularize the idea of Zionism. And he did so because he said the hope of Jews that they would be assimilated within the countries where they had settled was misplaced, that anti-Semitism was too deeply rooted for there ever to be full assimilation and incorporation where they had settled. That idea therefore became an idea associated with the central powers, particularly with Germany. It was a concern, therefore, of British government that if they failed to recognize the aspirations of Zionism, then they might be encouraging Jews to side with the enemy, with the central powers. And that concern became particularly acute with the United States' entry to the war in 1917 because many Jews had settled in the United States. And if they declared their support for the enemy because they identified with Jews who were still within Europe from which they had emigrated, then that could undermine the Allied war effort. In Britain, the great advocate of Zionism was Chaim Weizmann, whose family originally came from Russia, who pursued a career as an academic. Weizmann was a chemist at Manchester University. He made a considerable contribution to the British war effort, particularly in the development of explosives and the chemistry associated with them. But he was also an ardent advocate of a Jewish homeland. Fortuitously, one of the members of parliament for Manchester was Arthur Balfour. Balfour became the British Foreign Secretary in 1916. It is Balfour who, in November 1917, writes to Lord Rothschild and says that it is the policy of His Majesty's government to establish a homeland for the Jews within Palestine, on the understanding, however, that those currently resident in Palestine should have their rights and their religious practices protected. So by the time the First World War ended in November 1918, Britain had entered into three conflicting commitments, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the commitment to the Arabs, and the Balfour Declaration. But none of the three parties with whom they had entered into those undertakings was fully aware of the commitments made to the others. Moreover, Britain itself had not yet decided what its preferred policy would be, given the fact that it had promised the same land to different peoples. One might think there's a great plan here for the partition of the southern part of the Ottoman Empire, but there wasn't. When Allenby, the commander of the Egyptian Expeditionary Forces, it was called, advanced after the defeat of the Turks in September 1918, he signalled the Foreign Office because he thought that the Turks might at any moment ask for an armistice, and if that were the case, he would need to know the terms which he should impose as part of that armistice. The reply he received back from Balfour effectively said that the Foreign Office had no clear policy. Balfour knew that the Sykes-Picot Agreement was in many respects a dead letter, but what he did not know was what had taken its place. The result was that when the great powers assembled in Paris in 1919, what would happen to the Ottoman Empire was not yet clear. Indeed, the advice given to Faisal, Hussein's son, the man who had served alongside Lawrence in the Arab Revolt, was make sure you come to Paris to put your case, because it's still not absolutely certain what will happen. 
The problem was compounded because the United States was not a full belligerent in the war against the Ottoman Empire because it had never declared war on it. But the 14 points enunciated by Woodrow Wilson in January 1918 did have clear implications for the Ottoman Empire. One of those was that the United States believed that the Dardanelles should be declared international waters. There should be free use of the route between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. But even more fundamental was the United States' commitment to the principle of national self-determination. Here was a declaration which effectively said to the Ottoman Empire, we can recognize the Turkish nation, there can be a Turkish state, but there will also be states that recognize the other peoples who make up the Ottoman Empire. The possibility, for example, of an independent Armenia, an independent Kurdistan, and an independent Arab state. And that American policy suited Britain very well, because by recognizing the principle of national self-determination within the Ottoman Empire, that would enhance the possibilities of British indirect control and would enable Britain to use that principle of indirect control as a way of undermining the claims of France, now seen very largely as a competitor in the Middle East rather than as an ally. The British position increasingly worried the Jews, and particularly Weizmann. They knew enough by then to be aware that Britain was committed to supporting France in Palestine, to know that they were going to have to work in conjunction with the Arabs if they were to establish any Jewish authority within Palestine. Increasingly, they also recognized that there would be resistance on the ground both to an increased Jewish presence in Palestine and to a French presence. The solution to this problem arrived at in Paris was that countries should be given responsibility for certain territories under the authority of the League of Nations, a system known as mandates. So France should be given control of Syria and Lebanon, but crucially not Palestine because it was recognized that the resistance to that would be too great. And Britain should be given control of Palestine and also of Iraq. Because Britain is so determined to have Iraq and its oil, it cannot afford to be too obstructive of France in its claims to territory in Syria and Lebanon. While the Allied powers are disagreeing with each other in Paris about the future of the Ottoman Empire, the Turks are staging a recovery, a recovery that begins in 1919 and will culminate in 1923 with the establishment of what is today the Turkish Republic. From the ashes of defeat will emerge a form of victory. The author of this recovery was, above all, Mustafa Kemal, the man who became known as Ataturk, the founder of Turkey, a man who had conducted a successful defense of Ottoman territory at Gallipoli in 1915, who was originally from European Turkey himself. He came from Thessaloniki, as it is today, who was incensed by the humiliation which Turkey was forced to go through in the course of 1919. All these promises of Ottoman territory to other powers included a direct attack on what was seen by the Turks as Turkey's homeland on Anatolia. You have Greeks, Italians, French, British, all along the Anatolian coastline. You have the possible subversion of Turkish authority to the east with the offers of independence to Armenia and Kurdistan.
And the more those undertakings are entered into, the more these promises are made, the more that fuels Turkish nationalism and a mood for Turkish recovery. Mustafa Kemal's adroitness is his decision not to base his recovery on Istanbul, on Constantinople, on Turkey's traditional capital, but on Ankara, a city in central Anatolia, far removed from the coastline, far removed, therefore, from the territory which the Allied powers are occupying. A Grand National Assembly is formed and meets in Ankara. It's modelled on the French General Assembly of 1789. These are in many respects European nationalists, secular nationalists, who are looking to a French model for inspiration, not to some Islamic solution. When the Treaty of Sèvres is signed in Paris in 1920, the peace treaty that is imposed on the Ottoman Empire, the Grand National Assembly declares that those who have signed that treaty are guilty of high treason. So they reject it outright. In March 1921, Mustafa Kemal did a deal with Bolshevik Russia. The deal was effectively to concede control of Armenia, Azerbaijan and Georgia back to the Russians. But in return for that, the Bolsheviks would provide the Turks with weapons. And so the Turkish army could be rebuilt from scratch under the security of the Russians and distance from the European powers on the Mediterranean coastline. Those European powers then play into Turkish hands, beginning with the Greeks. The Greeks, having landed at Izmir, what was then called Smyrna, on the coastline, push inland. And in pushing inland, they overextend themselves and provide the opportunity for the Turks to stage a counterattack. Much of the control of the wider reaches of the Ottoman Empire lies with the British. And the British themselves are also overextended because they're trying to hold not just the Straits, Istanbul, the area around today's Chinakali, they're also trying to hold much of the Black Sea coastline and the oil supplies that come from Baku. And they're trying to hold on to Iraq and Egypt, which are now going through a revolution, quite apart from any other problems they've got across the rest of the British Empire, including very close to home in Ireland. By September 1922, the Turkish army had driven the Greeks right back to the Mediterranean coast, they enter Smyrna, a city very largely populated by Greeks who have been there for over 2,000 years. They commit atrocities as they set fire to the city and as they kill Greeks out of hand. This, in many respects, is a reflection of some of the atrocities the Greeks themselves had already committed when they had entered Turkey. But the upshot in the Eastern Mediterranean is ethnic cleansing. The purge of Greeks from areas like Gallipoli, very largely occupied by Greeks. Cape Helles is the name of the point where the Allies had landed in April 1915. The purge of Greeks from Turkey and the purge of Turks from what has now become Greek territory, particularly in Thrace and around Thessaloniki. Looking further north, by the end of 1922, the British and French position around Istanbul and along the Straits to Chinakli has collapsed. The French got out pretty quickly when they realised the way things were going and appreciated the advance of the Turkish army. The British under Lloyd George were more reluctant. They clung for longer to this illusion of a greater Greece and the possibility of real control of the Straits. But in the end, the Conservatives within the Lloyd George coalition government decided to leave the coalition with the result that Lloyd George's government fell. 
and that in itself precipitated the British withdrawal from northern Turkey. The treaty that finally ends the First World War with the Ottoman Empire, or now rather with the Turkish Republic, is the Treaty of Lausanne, signed in 1923. Significantly, Lausanne is in Switzerland, not in France. In other words, as many had argued right back in 1918, this peace is negotiated in a neutral country, not in an affronted belligerent, which had been the case with France. Moreover, this is a treaty at which the United States is simply an observer, not a signatory, because the United States had never gone to war with the Ottoman Empire in the first place. What comes out of this process, five years after the First World War ended, is the establishment of the modern Turkish Republic, a secular state, at least in name, and one that is identified in terms of the Turkish people rather than in terms of being a multinational empire. It is tempting to draw a straight line from those five years of conflict between 1918 and 1923 to the conflicts of the Middle East today, to see the persistence of oil as a crucial question, to see the rise of Sunni fundamentalism as a persistent factor in destabilizing the region, and above all, of course, to see in the conflicting promises made to Arabs and to Jews the origins of the problems of today's Middle East. But what this story of continuity fails to take into account are two significant changes of much more recent origin. The first is the impact of the Second World War and the Holocaust. It is those that legitimize the establishment of the State of Israel, and it is the political entity of Israel which creates the opportunity and the determination for war in the subsequent decades. The second is the recent direction taken by Turkey under President Erdogan, which has moved away from the secularization advocated by Ataturk, the Republic's founder, to a much more religious and much more Islamic approach to world affairs. Having looked at British imperialism in the Middle East, next time we shall explore the interests of the British Empire and its dominions in Africa and in the Pacific. That was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn. You have been listening to Peacemaking in Paris, a Chrome Radio production for UCL Institute of Education. The producer was Katrina Oliphant, with sound design by Chris Sharp.